0: So I don't know if any of you have seen that show, The Biggest Loser. Um, It's like a reality TV show where they basically torture people. Um, They take people who want to lose weight, and they put them on a super restricted diet, and then they make them exercise like crazy, and they kind of yell at them the whole time. I mean, it's really awful. Um, And maybe you've had this experience where you're watching The Biggest Loser, and then, you know, the commercial comes on, and it's... uh, Ben and Jerry's, buy a milkshake, you deserve it, you know. And then you go back to being yelled at for, uh, you know, being overweight. Or maybe you're on social media more and you follow the fitness uh, influencers and you see the then and now photos they post and how they've lost all this weight by uh, the sweat of their brow. And then you scroll down and the very next post is about indulgence, you deserve it. Uh, it's very confusing. We live in this weird culture that is both gluttonous and obsessed with being thin at the same time. Out of one side of our mouth we say, indulge yourself, you deserve it, and out of the other we say, deprive yourself to be skinny. And today we're going to look at temperance, specifically what does the Bible say about temperance in our eating. So many of us diet, In order to achieve an improved physical appearance and this isn't necessarily wrong I do think it's a kindness to your spouse or perhaps your future spouse to look after yourself to a certain degree but the Bible gives us a more pressing reason to pursue temperance temperance expresses contentment with God's gracious provision for us When we exercise self-control in our eating and drinking, it testifies that we trust God to take care of us and that our hearts are content in him. By contrast, gluttony is a sin of discontentment and unbelief. So when people have gluttonous habits of eating and drinking, it's not just that they really like food. Rather, it's evidence that something deeper is going on in their hearts. And today I want to turn to Numbers 11. So if you have your Bible, um, you can turn to Numbers 11. And the story's familiar. God delivers Israel from this brutal life of slavery in Egypt, and he brings them out of the wilderness to worship him. He made a covenant with them through Moses. He promised to bring them into the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. He dwelt with them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He divided the Red Sea. He provided water from a rock and rained down manna from heaven to feed them. And he showed a special love for them with each gracious provision. And yet Israel repeatedly responded with a rebellious and ungrateful heart toward God they often doubted that God would fulfill his promises. And it's easy for us to look back at Israel and dismissively think about them as, you know, they're pretty awful, glad I'm not like them. But New Testament authors continually point to their example as a warning for us. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Paul says, now these things, so namely Israel's rebellion in the wilderness and God's judgment on them, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So it's relevant for us. So if you have your Bible, you can look at Numbers 11. We're going to start reading in verse 1. It says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of the place was Taberah, or burning, because the fire of the Lord was burnt among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Then there's a description of manna, that they took it and made it into cakes. I'll just summarize verses 10 to 17. Moses complains to God that he has too much responsibility. He can't deal with all the complaints. So God graciously raises up 70 men to help him. And then look at verse 18. We'll continue reading there. And say to the people, consecrate yourself for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who gives us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month. Until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? I'll summarize the next verses. Moses basically says to God, The task you've given me is impossible. Where am I going to find meat for all these people? Then look at verse 23 And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Now jump down to verse 31. We're just going to read a few more verses about this episode in the wilderness. Verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits. So this is three feet. Okay, two cubits above the ground, and the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered quail. Those who were gathered least—oh, those who gathered least—gathered ten homers. A homer is about two hundred and twenty liters. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp, while the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed. The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth-Hateva, which means graves of craving, because there they buried the people who had the craving. Okay, so we'll stop there. This is a rather chilling historical account of God's people rejecting him in unbelief and ungratefulness. And on first reading, you may wonder why if God gave them meat to eat, he then kills them for eating the meat. But something dysfunctional is going on in the hearts of God's people. Verse 1 gives us a clue. It says the people are complaining. Verse 4 gives us another clue. It says the rabble had a craving. And again, the people complained. They were saying in their hearts, that what the Lord provided was not enough, and they wanted something better. Psalm 78, you don't have to turn there if you don't want, but I'm going to read a few verses because it references this episode and gives us more insight into the hearts of the Israelites in the wilderness. In Psalm 78, verse 18, it says, They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. And they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give us bread or provide meat for his people? So this is mockery, right? This is doubt that God could provide. And then in verse 21, Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power so we start to see that the people's sin was not that they preferred olives and garlic and fish over manna cake their sin was that their hearts were set in unbelief that God would provide for them despite God's promise that he would they were suspicious of God and did not trust his intentions to do them good or his ability to accomplish it. They were actually longing to be enslaved in Egypt again. They were saying, remember the free fish, the onions, the garlic. These things are so much better than anything that God has provided. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.6 that what they were desiring was evil. He says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they were calling their sinful cravings good and God's gracious provision evil. That's why complaining is such a a serious sin. It's taking God off the throne of your heart and replacing him with the object of your craving. It is, in the truest sense, idolatry. So a complaining, sen- uh, sorry, a complaining heart says, what I desire is better than God, and I can provide for myself better than God can. And this is why this passage is so chilling, because... God actually gives them what they want. He gives them meat. And this true story is also a vivid illustration. You can almost imagine them shoveling this meat into their mouths to satisfy this craving that has been so controlling them. And they sin willingly. And they show by their greedy, gluttonous eating that they reject God in unbelief. So when we struggle with overeating and sins of indulgence, so often we jump straight to behavior modification. Um, So do you know what I mean by that? You might um, put some principles in place or use some psychology like, you know, make it as hard as possible to do the bad habits you want to do and make it as easy as possible to do the good habits you want to do. So you're putting things in place to modify your behavior. This isn't bad, this this can be helpful, um, certainly if we want to change. But gluttony is about more than behavior modification. And Israel's rebellion in the wilderness is a warning to us to check our hearts god doesn't care about how skinny you are okay there's no bible verse that says thou shalt be skinny (laughs) however god does care a lot about whether his children eat from a grateful heart or from a greedy heart so in every rom-com ever ever made um, the woman she gets her heart broken and what does she do she goes home and eats two buckets of ice cream, right? And this is socially acceptable. It's the way we deal with our unhappiness or discontentment or anxiety and boredom or whatever, right? We, we eat our feelings. Um, now, it's one thing to, you know, hang out with girlfriends when you're down. Go get an ice cream and just remember God's good, good gifts to you, including ice cream. But... If you have a pattern of eating to numb your negative emotions, this is a red flag that something dysfunctional is going on in your heart. So what are some other red flags? Eating until you're uncomfortably full with regularity. Eating junk food to change your mood. Having secret stashes of food. Constantly snacking even when you're not hungry and don't need the extra food binge eating large quantities of food in a short amount of time, hiding eating binges from family members and friends. Uh, So these types of behaviors are red flags that something dysfunctional is going on in your heart and it's important that you take the time to understand what is going on. So when we're unhappy, food feels like a refuge, right? It relieves the pressure temporarily. But food is a poor refuge, and it has no power to actually help us. It can't deal with the problem of our sins, and it can't offer any lasting relief. Now, you might empathize with the Israelites' love of garlic and onions. Personally, I love garlic and onions. I add them to absolutely everything I cook. But you have to realize that the Israelites' craving for the momentary pleasure of food was so strong that they were actually willing to go back into slavery in Egypt. They were willing to give up God, and they didn't believe that God had something better for them to offer than Egypt. So we can talk about, you know, practical tips and tricks for overcoming greedy eating habits, but we have to understand that at root, gluttony comes from a heart of discontentment and unbelief. And we misuse God's good gift of food when we use it as a refuge and let our cravings control us. So for some reason, when it comes to food, we view overindulgence as sort of a morally neutral problem. Like maybe it like negative, negatively affects our waistline or our genes are becoming a little too tight. Um, but it seems a stretch to say it offends God. But in our passage, we see that when cravings for food control us, this is not a morally neutral problem. There is a clear link between a sinful heart and gluttony. And I think we make a mistake when we categorize gluttony as nothing more than self-destructive behavior. Gluttony is a sin against God. Now, there's times when it's appropriate and even God-honoring to feast with thankfulness in our heart to God. But what we're talking about here is something different. We're talking about greedy habits of eating that control us. Interestingly, the antidote to overeating is not be harder on yourself. The antidote to overeating is Christ himself. He tells us so. So do you know who else references this episode in history? In Israel's history Jesus does and if you have your Bible turn over to John 6 we're gonna read a few verses there <clears throat> John 6 and we're gonna look at verses uh, starting at verse 25 and beginning in verse 25 it says when they found him On the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Right? He had just made bread for them miraculously. So Jesus can see inside their hearts, and he knows that what the crowd really wants is magic bread. In verse 27, he goes on, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So notice, they're still looking for physical bread. Like, we'll believe in you if you give us some more bread here. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So bread, garlic, onions, and melons, they can satisfy our need for for food temporarily, but we'll just be hungry again in a few hours. By contrast, Jesus satisfies our greatest need, namely our need for peace with God. So he's the bread of life that satisfies through eternity. And when we believe in him, he takes away our sin and he gives us his righteous standing before God and he grants us eternal life in heaven with him. Now I find it interesting that, Jesus, that God created us with taste buds. You guys ever wonder about that? He could have made eating a purely utilitarian function, but he made eating pleasurable. And this makes sense when you realize that even eating bread is meant to point us to God. The first bite of the most delicious food that you've ever tasted is merely a shadow of of the pleasure of tasting the Lord's goodness. So he offers us more than temporary satisfaction. He offers us eternal satisfaction in knowing him and being at peace with God. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So often when we struggle with with overeating, it's not that we have a food problem. It's that we have a relationship problem. We're not satisfied with God's goodness. We've not taken him up on his offer to taste and to find refuge in him. By contrast, temperance is an outward expression of a heart that is content in God. So now I'd like to take a few minutes to discuss two wrong-headed responses to gluttony that get us into trouble. And these two responses are neglect... And legalism. So when well-meaning Christians bypass Jesus in their attempts to overcome their greedy eating habits, they actually make the problem worse. Neither neglect nor legalism address the root sins of unbelief and ungratefulness that cause us to overindulge in food in the first place. So first neglect. Temperance does not equal neglect. So some Christians operate under the misconception that our bodies don't matter. The first century Gnostics, so that was an early church heresy, they argued that physical things were bad and spiritual things were good. That's an oversimplification, but that is um, something they were teaching. But the Bible teaches us that God doesn't despise the physical realm. He created it. And even Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14, in order to redeem humanity. The scriptures teach us that our bodies matter to God. And when the church at Corinth was deceived into thinking what they did with their bodies didn't matter, Paul wrote them that their bodies mattered for at least three reasons. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 6. If you want to flip over there, you can. If not, you can just listen. But I'm going to read a couple verses. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we can see from here that your body matters for at least three reasons. Your body matters because... God dwells in your body, your body matters because it belongs to God, and your body matters because we exist in our bodies in order to give glory to God. So when we take care of our physical body, it acknowledges that our bodies are not ours exclusively. Our body belongs to God, and our food choices should reflect that our primary desire is to glorify him and not to please ourselves. So sometimes we fall into this mindset that, you know, my body doesn't matter. I have more important spiritual things to take care of. So we overeat or we undernourish our bodies and shrug our shoulders as if it doesn't matter. But God gave us a body. He could have made us spirits floating around, but he didn't. He made us embodied spirits with flesh and blood to take care of. And I would argue that a healthy diet is actually good stewardship of the body that God's given you. Another consideration is how our diet affects other people. So rarely do we think about healthy eating as a way to be generous to other people. But when we properly nourish our bodies, it gives us energy and increased capacity to serve others. So at the risk of stating the obvious, we fulfill our roles in the church in our physical bodies. And when we take care of our body, it improves our stamina and physical energy so that we can fulfill our role in the body of Christ. It sharpens our minds so we have clarity to share the gospel and encourage other people's faith. Good health actually frees us up to do the work of ministry. It's part of what it means to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, Romans 12.1. So it can seem really pious to, like, burn yourself out for Jesus. But in reality, taking time to take care of our bodies will likely prolong the length of ministry and increase its effectiveness. So there may be seasons where we want to fast and pray. Uh, Biblical fasting is a temporary intentional practice for the purpose of spiritual benefit. But this is different from a mindset of neglect that does not value the physical body God's given us. So a mindset of neglect not only does not deal with the sin that offends God, but it's actually counterproductive to our ability to glorify God in our bodies. So the antidote to overeating is not neglect, like just don't worry about your body. Second, temperance does not equal legalism. So many well-meaning Christians are like so done with being mastered by food that they unintentionally swing the other way and become mastered by a diet. So you can be mastered by food, you can also be mastered by a diet. In 1 Corinthians 6, if you're still there, we're just going to look a little earlier in the passage, Mark, or Paul writes about the importance of not being mastered by anything. He says in verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, in the context, the passages referring to being mastered by sexual sins but we can certainly make an application to anything else that masters us including gluttonous eating or diets and obsessive dieting so when we discuss healthy eating habits we need to be aware that the culture we live in is obsessed with being slim and healthy right biggest loser fitness influencers uh... wellness culture and as christians we need to be clear that exercising temperance in our food choices is not the same thing as being mastered by a diet or a desire to be thin. So you've got diet culture on the one hand that tells us that a slim down body will change our lives and the diet of choice is your means of salvation to get there. And people spend their days and months and years being mastered by calorie counting and weigh scale check-ins. And while it does take time and attention to learn how to eat healthy for the first time, a diet should always be a tool, not your master. Christians should partake in diets only so far as they're helpful for us to honor God with our body. Um, Otherwise, we've just traded one idolatry for another idolatry. Um, I also want to talk about wellness culture. While diet culture idolizes the perfect body, wellness culture idolizes perfect health. Um, So full disclosure, I'm more on the crunchy granola side. Um, I naturally veer toward wellness culture. Uh, My health has actually substantially improved by complementary and alternative medicine. Uh, Ten years ago, about, I joined the autoimmune community, and it didn't take long to notice that my fellow autoimmune if I can say that, are turning to this complementary and alternative medicine in droves. And I'll just call it CAM for short. Um, In waiting rooms, I have heard about everything from Reiki to body talk... Um, if you don't know what body talk is it's weird <laughs> um, I will tell you this story now that I've begun but I, w- I remember sitting next to a woman in a waiting room for a functional medicine doctor and she told me she had seen her um, practitioner for body talk where they touch different parts of your body and they tell you stuff about yourself and she looked at me dead serious and she said she told me that in a previous life I was a witch who was burnt at the stake and I was like Do I start laughing? Nope, nope, she's serious. Um, So so there's some weird stuff out there. Uh, Some of these CAM practices are dubious at best, but others such as eating an anti-inflammatory diet have intrigued me because of their medical explanations um, and documented effectiveness. However, I've learned that Christians must tread carefully in the CAM community because of its inherent legalism. Heal thyself is a popular mantra there's great confidence placed in the ability of a person to heal themselves with food, supplements, meditation, etc um, at the risk of oversimplification, cam views healthy people as these self disciplined enlightened ones they 're the people that have found salvation through their own ingenuity, ingenuity, sorry, um, and then those who are not well or haven't figured it out well everyone kind of looks down on them and here the wellness culture falls short not only does it um, fail to understand that all sickness is the result of the fall um, and that we're all dying albeit at different rates but it also has no category for a personal God who is making all things new And because of this, we can never quite be all in when it comes to the wellness culture. It's a limited solution at best, but never a cure. Now, there's biblical examples of sin affecting people's physical health. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 11.30. But physical sickness may also have nothing to do with any action that we've taken. Sometimes God wants us to be sick in order to glorify himself. So, for example, in John 9, 3, um, Jesus sees this man that was born blind, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. While many, including myself, have benefited from the wellness community, many others have struggled to find relief from their sickness and are forever on a rather expensive rabbit trail trying to discover what they have failed to do or need to do in order to find salvation from their illness. So the inherent legalism of this worldview results in an unfortunate hierarchy um, that is defeating for those who can't achieve good health through wellness principles. Um, David Powlison, who is a biblical counselor and author, he often talks about a ladder to describe this sort of worldly legalistic mindset where you're constantly trying to climb the ladder and in the wellness community the people at the top of the ladder are the ones who have made the furthest progress We look up to them. They are the ones to be admired. And then the people that are below us on the ladder have made less progress. We kind of look down on them. And then there's the poor girl on the floor that didn't even make the bottom rung. We kind of despise her. Um, So there's this real hierarchy. But this hierarchy has no place in a Christian worldview. As Christians, we must be clear that no diet can fix our deepest need. And Christianity preaches a really different gospel. God's grace is given without partiality. It's for the smart, and it's for the mentally challenged. It's for the healthy, and it's for the sick, the rich and the poor. With Christianity, there's a great leveling. All have sinned, and Jesus offers salvation to all who come to him, Romans 3.23. So no diet can fix our our deepest need. Even if we discovered the world's most perfect diet, it would have no power to free us from sin and its consequences. We're still going to die. Diet regulations make poor substitutes for Jesus when we consider that even those of us with less than physical, perfect physical health in this life, will enjoy perfect health in heaven for all eternity And we don't earn this gift by following a perfect diet while on earth. God gives it freely to everyone who believes in him. Romans 6, 23. Ironically, when we see someone in perfect shape, we may assume that they are a temperate, well-controlled person. And they may be, but they may very well be mastered by a legalistic diet or wellness culture. So we have liberty to follow a diet that benefits our health, but to borrow Paul's rhetoric, I will not be mastered by anything. As we talk about temperance in our eating, it's important that we don't jump into a legalistic mindset. Temperance and legalism are not the same thing. And I think this might be a fitting place to say a few words about eating disorders. So, diagnosed eating disorders, such as anorexia and bulimia are common enough, especially amongst young women, and likely you or someone you know has experienced a disordered relationship with food at some point. I know when I was 12 or 13, I was a ballerina away at ballet camp and I was exposed to the world of eating disorders for the first time. Um, I remember we all went outside at lunch, and like at least half the girls didn't bring their lunches, but they had their cigarettes. I'm like we're thirteen. Um, I never tried the cigarettes because my fundali- fundamentalist parents would have smelt that very quickly, and I'd be in big trouble. Um, but by the time I was fourteen or fifteen, you know, you'd jo- you join. Fitness was very important and we would uh, you know we'd binge eat and then you know you'd punish yourself for three days by eating only carrot sticks um, to kind of make up for what you had done climb back up the ladder but from what I experienced eating disorders are mentally exhausting and defeating they are motivated by a legalistic controlling heart and when I was in the midst of it I did not trust God with my future or open my mouth wide to receive the bread of life. My heart was mastered by competing gods, and I thought I could do better for myself than he could. And I share this because um, there may be some of you here who are in the throes of, of an eating disorder and this mental distress, and I want you to know that there's hope on the other side. And if you're here and you're trying to help someone, with an eating disorder. There's a few things that that you should keep in mind. First, I would say that a person with an eating disorder should probably have medical supervision. Uh, Mortality rates are fairly high among people with diagnosed eating disorders. Severe malnutrition causes medical problems, um, so a doctor and perhaps a dietitian could be quite helpful here to oversee this area of recovery. Second, I would say eating disorders are complex. So we might be tempted to kind of throw up our hands and say, oh, let's leave this to the professionals. But I would encourage you not to be afraid to offer a sister with an eating disorder biblical counsel. She is a spiritual being and make no mistake, she has a spiritual problem and you have biblical wisdom that can help her. Coming alongside a person with an eating disorder will require patience and compassion. She has some deeply ingrained ways of thinking and she's probably in the habit of deceiving people about what she eats. And so the road to recovery is often bumpy and long. So just be aware of this. Fourth, I would say, don't be afraid to use biblical categories to describe what's going on in her heart. So I would be cautious about overly psychologizing what's happening to her. So it's not wrong to say it's a mental illness, but it's less helpful for her to think about herself as a victim of an illness that she has no control over. She is, in fact responsible for her sin before God and if she has if she's a Christian she has every reason to hope for a better future and you can help her with this the beauty of biblical counseling is that we have a category for a God who breaks in and transforms life our lives and whatever's happened in the past whatever mental distress we're currently in whatever sins we've committed, these things don't determine our future. Certainly these things matter and they impact us, but they don't get to have the final say in our lives. So this was a lot to take in. I'm just going to summarize some of the things that we talked about. Um, So from Numbers 11, we see that there is a connection between gluttony and ungratefulness between binge eating and unbelief. By contrast, temperance is the outward expression of a heart that is satisfied in God. Now, some of us may have fallen into sins of gluttony and neglect, and if this is you, perhaps you need to make a plan to take better care of your body. You know, for some of us, this might require research to find out what a healthy plate of food actually looks like or what a portion size is. Um, I know with my boys, it's maybe a losing battle, but, you know, we try. You know, they'll pile their bowl full of ice cream and it's it's massive. And I'm like, well, you guys, do you know what a portion size of ice cream is? Like, let's look on the carton. Oh, it's a half a cup? That small? So... Okay, so do you have six or eight portions in your bowl? You know, like, sometimes it is a bit of a thing where we need to actually educate ourselves on what a portion size looks like. Accountability can be helpful here. Um, you know, perhaps find a friend to do this with you or a friend to check in with you occasionally and see how you're doing. For other of, others of us, we may need to repent of our sins of legalism. Many diet plans are beneficial, but our diet should never become a master to us. Diet regulations are a tool that you can use as long as it's helpful for you. But if it starts to control your life, it's no longer a godly pursuit. We actually need temperance in our pursuit of fitness and wellness. So when a Christian is mastered by either dieting or eating, the first and most important step in the change process is to repent of your sins as concretely as you can and to ask God for help. The more concrete you can get with this, the better. So what is your sin specifically? So some of the big categories we've talked about are gluttony, neglect of the body, legalistic adherence to diet or wellness, But there's also some sins that are behind the obvious sins. So, trusting in a false refuge, right? In a a difficult circumstances, circumstance, or when you're mentally distressed, do you believe that potato chips will help you more than God? Sounds like a silly question, but really, in that moment, are potato chips going to be more helpful? Do you trust in a false refuge? Idolatry. Do you desire a thin body or pleasure more than you desire God? What's consuming your thoughts? Ungratefulness. Are you unsatisfied with what God has given you? Do you feel like he's done you wrong? Entitlement. I deserve the pleasure that overindulgence brings. Unbelief. God won't provide something better than I can provide for myself. Or, I must control everything. Laziness. It's too much effort to look after my body. Eating cookies is easier. Uh, Pride in diet adherence or neglect of the body. You know, I'm so much better than everyone else, I don't need food like they do. (laughs) I'm higher up on the ladder. It sounds silly, but this is, this is a thing, um, pride in our eating. Selfishness. I don't care about serving other people with my body. I only care about my own pleasure. <coughs> Deception. Do you have secret stashes of food? Secret binges. Do you lie about whether you've eaten already? God wants your whole heart. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And this verse shows us that God cares about our motivation for eating and drinking. And I think we can be encouraged to know that it is possible to glorify God in the everyday details of our lives. Temperance in our eating and drinking and retail shopping or, or whatever Temperance glorifies God, and why is that? Because it shows that we are content with God's gracious provision for us and that we're trusting him with our future. So to close, I want to read Jesus' invitation in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 29. And if you've been controlled by cravings for food or by a self-imposed legalistic approach to diet and wellness... I hope you can hear his words with fresh ears this morning. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word to us even now, and I pray that you would help us as you've convicted us by your word and by your spirit. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts and that we would be changed, that we would seek to glorify you in all that we do, in all that we eat and drink and whatever we do, that we would glorify you, Lord. I pray that we would not be mastered by ungodly desires and cravings and unbelief, that We would walk forward even this week as women who believe in your promises and trust in them and show by our eating and drinking that we are content in you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have discussion questions on the table. If someone's willing to kind of take the lead on that, you can discuss around your tables.